Let's ask God to speak to us. Lord, thank you for this part of the Bible tonight that we're going to look at. And Father, we ask that as we look at the end of Saul's life, where his heart was turned away from you, that you would speak to us in such a way that our hearts shall not turn away from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was an unusually cold morning in January 1986 in Florida. The Space Shuttle Challenger lifted off from the Kennedy Space Center at Cape Canaveral to begin its 10th mission. There was a lady on the flight called Christina McAuliffe, and she was the first teacher who was ever going to be in space. And so on that morning, many, many school children were tuned in to watch the shuttle launch. And those of you who are old enough know what happened. 73 seconds after takeoff, the whole shuttle blew into pieces. There was an investigation into the disaster to find out exactly what had happened. And what they realized was that a little rubber seal, a rubber washer, in the coldness of that January morning had become brittle and broken and flames came out of the burner and blew the whole thing apart. But what made this even more tragic was that they knew that this was a possibility. On previous test flights, they knew that this could happen, and yet the warning of those test flights was ignored. As humans, we're we're really prone to ignoring warnings, aren't we? What is it within ourselves that make us so prone to doing that? You know, on every cigarette packet, smoking seriously increases your risk of cancer. And yet we're still as many smokers today as there have ever been. We see the adverts on TV and they're so graphic. Don't drink and drive. Don't text and drive. And yet every year on our roads, the warnings are ignored and many people are killed. Why are we so prone to ignore warnings? Maybe we believe that we could manage the consequences. Okay, if I get cancer, I'm going to be able to manage that. Whatever the consequences are, I'll be able to manage that. That might be one reason. Or maybe it's proudness. Do you know what? Those consequences will never happen to me. I can drink and drive. I can smoke and not get sick. It won't happen to me. I'm above that. I'm invincible. There may be a proudness, a pride that stops us listening to warnings. In 1 Kings chapter 11, sadly what we see is Solomon ignoring a warning that God had given him in the book of Deuteronomy. And what we see it leading to are some very, very sad consequences. I don't know what you do if you you work or if what you did whenever you did work, but whenever you're in a workplace, whenever you're working for a company, there are rules you've got to follow. Whatever role you're doing, there are rules you have to abide by. And whenever it came to being the king of Israel, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we read the rules that the king had to abide by. And what's absolutely shocking when it comes to Solomon, it's almost like Solomon took this list of rules that God had given and did them 
Like it was like he was ticking them off in disobedience. Every single rule that God gave for the king, Solomon broke. And on your handout, you see it there. So Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 16 says, The king must not acquire many horses for himself. But in chapter 10, we see that's what Solomon did. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. Now, if you have chariots, 1,400, and if you have 12,000 horsemen, you have an awful lot of horses, don't you? Don't acquire lots of horses, God had said in Solomon. Well, in his proudness, he acquired them anyway. Tick, done it. Then Deuteronomy 17, 16, again, you see it there. He must not cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord God has said, you shall never return that way again. And then we read in 1 Kings 10, 28. And Solomon's import of horses was from where? Egypt. He had all the nations around him to get horses from, but Solomon was determined to get them from Egypt, even though God had said he shouldn't. Deuteronomy 17, 17. And he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Not too much gold, not too much silver. You're not to become too wealthy. Then look at 1 Kings 10 again. 1 Kings 10, 14. Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. If you don't know what that is, it's an awful lot of gold. And the silver again. Look at this. 1 Kings 10, 27. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. So much silver in Jerusalem under his reign that it was just like rocks on the ground. Tick. Everything that the Lord had commanded the king not to do, King Solomon did in chapter 10. Apart from one thing. In chapter 10 we read nothing about him taking many wives. And so we finish chapter 10 thinking to ourselves, okay, he's done these things, but he's not taken for himself many wives. And then we turn over to chapter 11 and we see that he has. Look at how it starts. Look at what we've got there in our passage. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women. And then if you have a look at verse 3, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. It's not just that he takes one or two wives, he goes completely over the top. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines and they're all foreign women. Now let me just say here, the Bible is not against interracial marriage. This is not a racial thing. It's not that, that, that the Bible is against um, white people marrying black people or, or Asian people marrying black people or anything to do with interracial marriage. The Bible does not rule that out at all. It's about the gods they worship. The king was not supposed to marry foreign wives because God said that if he did, they would turn his heart away from him, the living God. Look what it says there in Deuteronomy if the king takes many foreign wives wives who worship other gods his heart will be turned away that's the warning Solomon's given do not take many foreign wives God says because your heart 
will be turned away. But Solomon, he doesn't listen. Doesn't listen to God's warning. Doesn't obey God's command. And the passage doesn't tell us here, but do you know why I think he does it? Because he thinks to himself, no Lord, not me. Not me, Lord. My heart, it, it could never be turned away. And why do I think he thinks that? I think because Solomon, in many ways, he was a very, very special king. He enjoyed the special love of God the Father. You see it in 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25. According to the Bible, he's the only king who the Lord appeared to in a dream. What a special thing to have happened. And then whenever Solomon built the temple, how did God bless him and the people? As we heard last week, God filled the temple with his presence. And I think what Solomon does is he, he looks at him and he looks at his relationship with God and he thinks, you know what, not me. I'll never be turned away from God. And as we found out a couple of weeks ago, that the first wife he took was an Egyptian woman. And then it seemed to have escalated into more and more and more and more. Solomon, I think, was complacent about his faith. He was the king, one of God's people. He was special. He, he was the wisest man in the world. His heart would not be turned away. I wonder tonight, are, are there any of you here like that? You've been Christians for a long time. You've seen God at work in your life in amazing ways. You know the scriptures and you believe them. And maybe you're here tonight and you've become complacent in your faith. So complacent that you think that you can listen to what God says and ignore it. So complacent that you think that you can listen to the warnings God gives, but, but ignore those too. So complacent maybe tonight that you sit here thinking to yourself, listen, my heart could never be turned away from God. I am above all that. Maybe tonight you sit here like Solomon. Maybe you sit here tonight complacent about your faith. Maybe tonight you're, you, you put yourself in positions where you're tempted. And, and you willingly put yourself into those positions because you think, I'll never give in to that temptation. Or maybe you're here tonight and you spend a, a, an amazing amount of time with people who are always trying to make you doubt your faith and pull you away from Christ. And you think, I can do that because I'll never be pulled away, I'll never doubt. I wonder tonight, are you here and you're complacent? You think you've arrived. You think nothing can derail you. You think nothing can pull you off track. Folks, can I just say that that, that can be a very dangerous place to be. A very dangerous place to be. To be in a place of complacency. And this was the place that Solomon was in. He was in this place of complacency. Don't marry foreign women. They'll turn your heart from me, God has said. Not me, was Solomon's reply. I'm too wise for that. I'm too godly for that. Other men, they, they might fall for that, but not me, Lord. <coughs> but Solomon was wrong. He was wrong in his thinking. He was wrong in his complacency. Look what it says. Again, look at our passage, verses 1 and 2. 
And King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for they shall surely will turn away your heart after other gods. And then look at this sad conclusion of that verse. Solomon clung to these in love. Do you remember when we met Solomon a few weeks ago? Do you remember how he was described? He was described as someone who loved the Lord. Who was first in his heart? Who did he love? Who did he cling to in love when we met him? He clung to the Lord. And here he, he's let go of the Lord. He, he's not clinging to the Lord anymore. He's clinging to these wives. He's clinging to them in love. They have his heart. It's so sad here. Here he, he loves these women more than he loves the Lord. And what do you do when you love someone? <laughs> what should you do, I guess, when you love someone? You try to please them, don't you? When you love someone, you try to please them. When you love the Lord, you try to please him. When you love your wife or your husband, or your mother, or your father, or your auntie, or your uncle, or your family relations, you try to please them. When you love a friend, you try to please them. But what if you love someone who you really shouldn't love? Solomon here, he, he loved these women who worship these foreign gods. And what Solomon does now is he tries to please them. He wants to please them. And he wants to please them more than he wants to please God. And look at verses 3 to 8. Look what we're told there. We're told that he loved his wives, he clung to them, and then that his wives turned away his heart. Look what it says, verse 4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as his heart with the father of his David his father was. For Solomon went after Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. So sad, isn't it? He was this man who loved the Lord. And then he loved these wives he wasn't meant to love. And then he started giving his heart to these false gods who they followed. And they were horrible gods. Asheroth, he was a fertility goddess. He commanded all sorts of perverse things to be done in the worship of her. Milcom or Molech. Worshipping him involved child sacrifice. It's no wonder he's called an abomination. And the same could apparently be said of Shemosh. And Solomon, he had 700 wives. We don't know how many other gods he turned and, and worshipped instead of the one true living God. Last week, Solomon built the temple, didn't he? Well, he even builds temples for these gods. And they were told that he builds them on the mountains surrounding Jerusalem so they're higher than the temple it's so sad isn't it 
This man who, who loved the Lord is now turned away from the Lord by his wives. And there's something that I find particularly tragic about this. And the particularly tragic thing is in verse 4. Look at the first five words of verse 4. For when Solomon was old. It happened when he was old. For decades and decades and decades, he loved the Lord and he followed the Lord. And yet it was in his old age, advanced in years, that his heart was finally turned away. And tonight I think that this passage, I think it has three big things to say to us tonight. I think it's one big thing to say to those of you tonight who are not married, but you want to be one day. And I know that is some of you. I think it's got something to say to you. I think it's got something to say to those of you who are advanced in years. For those of you who might describe yourselves as older. And I think it's got one big thing to say to all of us. So, so let's look at the three big things. Let's start with those of you who are not married but would like to be. And I know that's some of you here tonight. Um, some of you may be here tonight and, you've, and you're, you're not married and you have no desire to be married. And that is brilliant. That is the gift of singleness. And that is good. And the Bible affirms that and it says it's a good thing because you can give yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord. So that's the first thing. Singleness is wonderful. And it's wonderful according to the scriptures. But there's some of you here tonight and, and you do want to be married. You hope to have a life partner one day. Someone to share your life with. Someone to be with for the rest of your day. And the big thing that this, this passage really screams out tonight is to marry someone who has the same faith that you do. It's to marry someone who is at the same place spiritually that you are. That is the big thing that this passage screams out tonight. If you're a committed follower of Christ who wants to live for Christ wholeheartedly, marry someone who's a committed follower of Christ who wants to live for Christ wholeheartedly. That is what this passage is screaming out. To marry someone who is in the same place as you spiritually. Why do you do that? Well, there's a very positive reason. It's so you can share your faith together. It's so you can share in the most important thing in your life together. If you marry someone who's not a believer, if you marry someone who, who's half-hearted or who's lukewarm or, or who's a Christian by name but not by the reality of their life, you're not going to share the joy of the Lord together. How are you going to pray with them? How are you going to read the Bible with them? How are you going to serve with them? How are you going to go to church with them? Positively, you want to share your life with, with someone who shares the most important thing to you and to them. So that's the first thing. But negatively, and that's what we actually see in this passage, we see the negative side of it if you don't. And the negative side is that if you marry someone who's not a believer or who's not in the same place as you, the most likely thing that's going to happen is that they're going to pull you down to where they are rather than you going to be able to pull them up. The smallest person in the room, the lightest person in the room, the weakest person in the room, if you came and stood here tonight and you held my hand, what's easier? Is it easier for me to pull you up 
to where I am? Or is it easier for you to pull me down to where you are? The weakest of you in the room would pull me down in two seconds. And that is why, folks, it's so important that if you're considering marriage, that you don't marry someone who's not where you are spiritually. You don't marry someone who just says they're a Christian to get a ring on their finger. You don't marry someone who's an unbeliever even if you love them. Because what the most likely thing that is going to happen is that they're going to pull you down to where they are rather than you be able to pull them up to where you are. And this is affirmed in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7.39 and 2 Corinthians 6.14. You've got it on your handout there. But you see what it says, don't you? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. And then it's talking about remarriage. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. The New Testament is also very clear in this, that we're to marry people in the Lord, who are believers, who are where we are, at the same level as us, spiritually speaking. If you're here tonight and you're hoping to marry someone, make sure that they're where you are spiritually. And tonight I really want to kind of, if I can, tattoo this warning on, on your mind. So I'm going to talk about it a bit more. And what I want to do is I want to give you three scenarios of what was going to happen if you don't do that. Scenario number one is this, that the, if you marry an unbeliever, the Christian will, will have to push Christ to the margin of their life to please their partner. That's scenario number one. If you marry an unbeliever, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to take Jesus, who is your all and who's your love and who you want to follow wholeheartedly. And because they're an unbeliever, what you're going to have to do to make the marriage work is you're going to have to set Jesus over here. <coughs> and you're going to have to try to follow Jesus on the side. And every time you, you want to go to church, every time you consider reading your Bible, every time you want to, to, to do something in the church, there's always going to be that question, why are you doing that? What are you doing that for? And then when children come along, disaster happens. You want to bring up your kids in the faith. You want to bring up your kids to follow Christ. But your partner says, I don't know about that. That's what can happen. That's scenario number one. Push Christ to the margin. Scenario number two is you push your partner to the margin. And you say, listen, I'm following Christ and I don't really care what you think. And I'm going to have people in our home to do Bible studies. And I'm going to go to church and I'm going to live for Jesus wholeheartedly. And listen, if you don't like it, that's unlucky. Tough for you. And that person who's married to you is going to feel pushed out. And resentful. And a marriage like that can't flourish. A marriage like that can never go well. There will always be resentment towards you and your feelings. And so the third scenario is that stress breaks up the marriage. Both partners completely unhappy with one another. And the marriage breaks. And there's hurt. And there's pain on both sides. Both people end up feeling lonely and unhappy. 
Does this sound like the marriage you want? No one wants a marriage like either of these, do they? So folks, if you're here tonight and, and you're not married yet, my, my plea for you is to tattoo this passage and, and these warnings on your mind not to be unequally yoked, but to marry those who are in the same place spiritually as you. And maybe you're here tonight and, and you're in that marriage where you're not in that position. And you feel that rub and you feel that tension. Folks, if you're in that position, you've got to love Jesus and you've got to love your partner and you've got to try to work out how to do both. It's not the ideal scenario, but it's the scenario that you're in. And the question is, how can I love and honour Christ and how can I love and honour my partner? And that's a hard, it's a hard balance to get and it's a hard act to, to, to do. But tonight that's what you're called to do. Love Christ and love your partner. So those of you who are not married and want to be, that, that is the warning and I want you to, to never, ever, ever, ever let that go. Then there's those of you tonight who, who are well on in years. And the sad thing that we saw in the passage tonight is that Solomon turned away from the Lord when he was old. It was in the latter stages of his life. And one of the things that I didn't realise, and it was only through doing some reading this week, is that many older people worry that this is going to happen to them. They worry if they're going to be able to keep going as life goes on and they get older. They think about if they go into nursing care eventually and maybe can't come to church, how are they going to keep going? They look to a time and maybe they can't serve the Lord like they used to do. Maybe they can't do the things that they once did and they wonder, how am I going to keep going? And the only reason I know that's an issue is because John Piper, who is a retired man and I'm working his way towards that, he says this, one of the greatest obstacles to getting old to the glory of God is the fear that we will not persevere in treasuring Christ and loving people. One of the most difficult things with getting old is the worry that we just won't make it. That we won't be able to say with Paul, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. And maybe tonight you're here and you're in that position that you're, you're worried that you're going to end up like Solomon. Well tonight there, there, there's two words for you. And they both sound very similar but they're both slightly different. One is perseverance and one is preservation. Perseverance and preservation. And these are the two things I want you to remember tonight. The first thing is this, is that God will preserve you. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he, he was thinking about this and he actually relates to what John Piper said. He relates with this idea that as you get older, there's that fear that you won't be able to keep going. And he's got this lovely quote. He says that God kisses the way of the fear of aging with his promises. God kisses away the fear with his promises. And as you age and you worry, are you going to be able to keep going? What you do is you cling to the promises of God that he will preserve you. No pickles in a jar, pickled and they're preserved by, by the force around them. You, you trust that God will preserve you because of his promises and he's given you so many. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Believe that. Trust God to bring this work he started to completion. 1 Corinthians 1, 8-9. He will sustain you to the end. 
guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see that? He will sustain you to the end. Jude 1.24, he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with the great joy. Romans 8, those who he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As you approach the latter years and this worry, will I be able to treasure Christ and keep going no matter what? Trust that God will preserve you. That is the first thing. Let those promises kiss away the fear. But the second word is this, persevere. Persevere. The evidence that God is preserving someone is that they're persevering in the faith. Keep going. Keep trusting Christ. Keep praying. Keep listening to the word. Keep reading the word if you can. Keep him at the center of your vision. Keep the cross central in your life. Keep on going. Keep on going. Folks, if you're older and, and you do worry about that, trust the promises of God. He'll preserve you and keep persevering. Keep pressing on. Let's write the last thing from this passage, which is a danger for us all, and it's really a question. Here in our passage, it was Solomon's wives that caused his heart to be turned away. It was his wives that, that led to him being pulled away from clinging to God. He clung to them, and then he was pulled away from God. And I guess the question to all of us tonight is this. What are the things that are trying to pull you away from Christ? Tonight, as you sit here, what are the things that the enemy is using? What are the temptations that he's putting in your mind? What are the things that he's putting in your life that are tempting you to turn from Christ? The enemy would love you to be out of the race. He'd love you to be out of the race. He'd love you to be this ineffective Christian who, who's one of God's people but is totally ineffective because you've been kind of distracted and turned away by other things. He'd love that. C.T. Sud said, whenever I die, he says, I want to die, that hell is rejoicing, that I am out of the race. And tonight, Satan, the enemy, would like you to be out of the race if he can possibly get you out of it. And so the question is, what are those things that are threatening just now to pull you away from God? To pull you away from Jesus? Are there certain people who are trying to pull you away? There are certain things you want that are trying to pull you away. What is trying to pull you away from God just now? Tonight, whatever those things are, I want to encourage you to do something. And it's to sacrifice them. It's to cut them off. It's to stop letting those things capture your heart. It's to look again at Christ. To see him there bloodied on the cross for you. To see him there having given his life for you. It's to look to him and say, Jesus, I want to follow you, whatever. Whatever it costs, let me live for you. Let me keep going at the end.
Folks, tonight, if, you're, if your heart's been pulled away, look to the one who loved you so much he gave himself for you. And let your heart be captured by him again. God preserves us, but let's persevere. Let's not have a story like Solomon's. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, your word is filled with things that seem like paradoxes. You chose us before the foundation of the world and yet whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So many things just seem that they work together in such a way that it's hard for us to understand. But Lord, tonight thank you that you will preserve us. Thank you that those of us who you've justified, that one day you will glorify, that you'll bring us to the end of the race, that you'll help us to cross the line, and that you'll say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. But Lord, help us to persevere. Help us to keep going. And Father, just now, if there's any weight around our ankles, any sin threatening to ensnare us and pull us down and away from you, help us, Lord, to cut it off so that we may trust you and live for you and follow you wholeheartedly. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Help us, Lord, to love you back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.